You're listening to 2.23am with Dr. Christine McDougall. Are you ready for a new kind of success and fulfillment? End the silent struggle. Join us as Dr. Christine McDougall speaks to successful, high-achieving men as they share their journey towards a more fulfilling and sustainable life and business and discover the better alternative. It's 2.23am and the life of your future is calling. Today I'll be speaking with Mark Rowland, who has become a friend. I managed to convince Mark in 2015 to fly from Las Vegas to the Gold Coast in Australia to be part of my Big Blue Sky event and uh, as one of our sort of featured guests. And he did that with such grace and did a fantastic job and established just a really fantastic reputation with everybody while he was here. Since then, we've gone on to become friends and colleagues and uh, and so I'm really delighted that he said yes to this interview. Mark is an Anglo-Aussie living in the US with his wife, Danielle, and two kids, Jack and Emily. Mark emigrated to Australia immediately after finishing his Bachelor of Science in Management Science from the University of Manchester and started to work with PricewaterhouseCoopers in Sydney. He stayed with PricewaterhouseCoopers for 10 years working in the assurance, corporate finance and consulting practices and gathered great experience working in six countries and five separate industries where he became interested in the underlying social systems in the different companies, industries and countries he was exposed to. Mark left PricewaterhouseCoopers when IBM acquired the consulting arm and became GM strategy and business development within Coles Meyer Limited now West Farmers, where he remained for four years prior to becoming the chief executive noodle of Wagamamba in Australia. At this time, Mark had his first experience of executive coaching, and it was so impactful that he decided to become a qualified coach himself and created his leadership style around coaching. Mark then co-founded an e-commerce company in Sydney, which was the first pure play major shoe store in Australia which he exited in 2013 and relocated to the U.S. to support Tony Shea's downtown project in Las Vegas. He is currently supporting the U.S. Air Force's Culture of Innovation Initiative called AFWERX, working with the 670,000 men and women of the Air Force to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of grassroots innovation on base and also helping connect the Air Force with the private sector and academia. In this episode, we discuss Mark's journey of self-expression and self-discovery across four countries as Mark determines that the key performance indicator that matters most to him is how many happy minutes fill his days and the days of all of those around him. Please enjoy this episode with Mark Rowland. I am speaking today with Mark Rowland, who is in Las Vegas, although he doesn't sound like a Las Vegan. <laughs> hey, Mark, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Christine. That's great. So as you know, what we're really looking at here is uh, I'm speaking with some amazing men around the world about what it means to be a man in today's world. And given uh, that you have now lived at least in three countries that I'm aware of. <laughs> uh, four, actually. Four, actually. There you go. There's one, one that I'm not aware of. Uh, and, and so you've, you've not only had your experience of uh, what it means to be a man, man in today's world, but also from a cultural perspective. So can you just speak into that sort of like from a broad-based point of view, um, any of the experiences that you've had, uh, particularly uh, being present in the United States for the last few years uh, about the changing culture between men and women for you personally? Sure. Well, firstly, I'll, just, I'll, I'll share which four countries, just in case you were wondering, yes. the one you were missing. <laughs> so yes. I was uh, born, born in England, lived in England till I was uh, 23 years old. I finished my university degree and then emigrated to Australia by myself. I had no family over there, so it was a bit of a jump. Stayed there for close to 21 years. In between, I spent uh, one year in Korea. So I lived in Seoul uh, for a year and then emigrated to, to America. Uh, five years ago, so in 2013. Wow. So I've had, luckily for me, most of the countries that I've lived 
over a year, or all of them that I've lived over a year, all speak English. Oh, makes makes life a lot easier when you move around the world in countries that at least speak speak your language. Yes. There's not that many countries in the world that do speak English. I think I've I've just got New Zealand and Canada to go, an island. Okay. <laughs> then I'm done. Right. Um, so in terms of, I think you know, it, it, interestingly, just being in America for the last few years and seeing what's happened in this country with the change in the whole atmosphere of the country with, you know, with President Trump yes. uh, taking office and his views on things. Yes. And then also the Me Too movement and just seeing how that has actually uh, changed the, I guess, the, the work culture uh, as well as just normal culture in the US and I guess around the world as well. But I've been here ever since the Me Too movement kind of yes. took shape. Yeah, it's been a huge, uh, definitely a huge change. From certainly talking to my grandma about her life and my mother about her life and seeing my sister and now seeing what it's like for my daughter, uh, the world is very, very different uh, for women, especially in the workplace than it was uh, any time that I can remember. So I just want to go back to, so have you actually set out to have uh, more robust conversations with your grandmother and your mother and so on about uh, the sort of changing role of women at this time. I just wanted to understand if that, if you've done that with purpose or it was just something that... Was, no, I just, I mean, I, I just wanted to talk to, you know, as you get older in life, I guess you get a little bit more respect, respectful of, of the people that came before you and how much of a pain you must have been when you were a child for them, <laughs> when you see what it's like to have your own children. <laughs> yes, yes. And then just, you know, as you know, my grandma's still alive. It was her birthday yesterday. Right. She's in Happy her nineties. Yeah. Thank you. My yeah. nana lived into her nineties as well. Yes. So just as they were getting getting older, just having conversations with them, you know, just to try and understand what what life was like when they were children, when they were, you know, when when they were having babies, my mother was born, etc. Just trying to understand what 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 her role was in the family. And then my mother, I know, gave up her career when I was born. Yes. Which was pretty sad. Yes. Um, for her, you know, who knows what she might have accomplished career-wise had it not been for, for me being born <laughs> and the world that was then. Um, but she's, yeah, she's been a huge influence on my life. And then just, you know, just generally having conversations and then seeing with your own eyes what's going on and, and listening to everything. And it's, it's, there's, it has been a, a huge shift, I think, in terms of equality, um, you know, in this last decade, I, I think. And, and, and how has that shaped you in any particular way that you can that, that you're aware of or that you can speak of? I think for me, it, I mean, the company that I founded uh, close to five years ago now, I was the only male in the team. Everybody else was female. So I think you know, for me, um, I don't know when it was that I, I I can't remember a time when I ever thought you know men were better than women at work. I was lucky enough to start up, uh, start my career at Price Waterhouse, yes. as it was then, now Price Waterhouse Coopers, and I don't believe there was any gender bias in that organisation, not that I could notice anyway. So working in teams at PwC, you know, half the people around me were uh, were female, half the people around me were male, yet everybody was, I think, equally good. So I think that was just very lucky for me to have that experience, and I've never really had any. I don't believe so anyway. Ever had any gender bias? in relation to the people that I work with, um, the people that <clears throat> I hire, the people that I promote, uh, the people that I pay. I can't, I can't remember having anyone ever come to me and say there was any, any kind of bias based yeah. on, on gender in our organizations that I've been a part of, with the exception of just probably one company that I spent four years with, which was Coles Meyer. That was, it was a little bit probably a little bit more evident there. But in terms of the businesses that I've had a, a senior role in and, and been responsible for, certainly never really noticed any, any gender bias. But now what I see is it's becoming more commonplace. Whereas maybe, you know, I'm certainly not going to say that I was a progressive, but, you know, people like me uh, that were CEOs of companies that made sure that they tried to hire, a, you know, just based on talent, not based on, on gender or age or anything. Um, that's now becoming more of the norm. Right. Whereas maybe back then it was it was not. Okay, okay, and so so if we circle back to your uh, your upbringing, you said that your mother influenced you a lot, uh, and so I, because part of what I'm discussing as well in these conversations is some of the 
some of the enculturation of boys that still goes on right now. Uh, and for whatever reason, the mythology that boys don't cry, you know, that sort of stuff, which mm-hmm. <laughs> you think about and you go, really? Why is that important uh, but, uh, or yeah. necessary? So did you, did you have any of that in your upbringing? Did you have any recognition that, that, that you were supposed to behave in a particular way as a boy? <laughs> you know the one memory that, that <laughs> the one memory that brings up I can't remember why but I know that I was bored at home one day and I was just dressing up and I raided my I think it must have been my my parents bedroom yeah. and went in there and opened the wardrobe and just pulled some stuff out and was doing like my own little kind of you know fashion show trying on stuff and I think Adamant was was probably someone that I was listening to music wise, and he was definitely very progressive in terms of his dress code. <laughs> yes, yes. So I know I remember. I think I had my mum's hat on, my mum's scarf, my dad's jacket, uh, my mum's knee length boots because they fit me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just kind of walking around the house, and my mum came home and then <laughs> told me that that's probably not something that I should be wearing. Uh, but I didn't really listen to her because the next day at school, I decided it would be fun to wear my mum's knee-length boots to school. But I had I had long pants on, so no one could actually see that I was wearing knee-length boots. But then I totally forgot that it was physical education that day. So I had to go into the change rooms and take off my pants. And obviously, all my classmates saw that I was wearing my knee-length boots. <laughs> I got pulled into the headmaster's office to explain myself. And I just said I thought they were cool. He kind of let me, he, you know, he didn't make much of a deal of it. He just called my mum and um, I had to answer, answer to her when I got home. But but yeah, definitely back then it was more, you know, play with action men, evil Knievel, male role models. Everything on TV was probably male in terms of role models. The role models at school were mainly male. The You know, the, the uh, reverend at my local church was male. So definitely without even, I guess, without even knowing what was going on, you are... I guess you were, I was in a, in a male world where there were certain things that were expected of you, but certainly I wanted to explore my own individuality. I don't think I ever stopped doing that. Right. It might have started with wanting to wear my mum's knee length boots to school when I was about 10. Yeah. <laughs> but since then there's been, you know, I guess just a lot more. I've always tried to be true to myself. I kind of figured that that was, that was what led to, you know, being happy, which is the thing that's probably the most important thing to me is, trying to have as many happy minutes as I can in my life and trying to help others have as many happy minutes as they can. And if that means expressing myself and doing things a little bit different to the norm, if it makes me happy, then, you know, so be it. And I'll, I'll certainly do that. So so just going back, I'm just going to see if I can tie these two together. So going back to the knee-length boots, because I think that's just a gorgeous <laughs> story. And and it's a story of complete innocence. I mean, what you're talking Absolutely. about is... Yeah. is is no, there's no stereotype, there's nothing. It's just these are fun, I like the look of these, how do I give these a go and, and, uh, and so on. And so do, were you aware at the time that, that there was any, any, any part of you that was like I, curious or, you know, why am I not allowed, this is just an expression, you know, just there's something that seems wrong with that or that it's, it, was there shame attached to it or something like that, you know, I'm just... There's definitely, I definitely knew that it wasn't normal, yeah. as in not everybody else was doing it, which is yeah. why I kind of hid the knee-length boots underneath my pants. Yeah. But no, I, I, again, one of the one of the people that was, I guess, a role model was was Adam Ant, Adam and the Ants, and he wore makeup. Yeah. And he had long hair, and he he wore strange clothes. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of interesting and, and cool, but I didn't. I certainly, in my head, going back to then. I wasn't thinking to myself, oh, maybe he's gay. Yeah. And I wasn't thinking to myself, oh, maybe people will think I'm gay if I wear knee left boots to school. Of course, yeah. Yet I know that that was probably going through my mum's mind right. when she saw me. Right. Well, I don't know for sure, but I'm imagining yeah. that that she was she was probably a little bit perturbed by the fact that her son was was wearing her clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, very good. And so, so how, where did you? I'm, I'm just curious. Where did you get from from that sort of experience, or because you somehow connected them, uh, the the connection between full expression of who you are uh, without really falling into uh, too much concern about what people think, and happiness, happiness minutes. Uh, well, that came a little bit later in life. Yeah. But um, certainly, 
I think probably the most, one of the most influential times, there's a few things in my life when, you know, I, I can remember, I guess, defining moments in your life. And one of them was seeing my, I had a, a little pet dog, a little yeah. Yorkshire Terrier. And um, she used to come with me and I, I used to, I had a job since I was 10 years old. And one of the jobs I had, the first job I had was just delivering newspapers in the village uh, where I lived. So I'd get up at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, I'd run around the village and hand out newspapers and then come home, get ready for school and go to school. And my dog used to come with me. And I never used to put her on, on a leash because typically she'd always just be running right right next to me. And then one day we got separated and then I saw her get killed basically oh by God. a car. She got run over. And I remember I, I had to call my dad and tell my dad to to come and pick up the dog and uh, we we went back home together uh buried my i saw my dad burying the dog in the back garden i saw my sister and how modified she was and i just ran away and my dad thought i was actually going to run to the local quarry and, and jump off the cliff because that's that's where he went looking for me and in actual fact what i did was i went i ran to the i ran to the local church uh, the door was locked, couldn't get in, but I knew where the, you know, where the vicarage was. So I ran to the vicarage, knocked on the door of the vicarage, and uh, the vicar let me in and saw that I was a bit upset and gave me the keys to the church. So I ran to the church and I just sat there, just reflecting on how horrible a moment that was and wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I literally, I think I probably cried for about two or three days straight. Yeah. Because I think that dog had more of a, you know, that was so important to me. I don't think I realized how important it was until, you know, until that happened. Because I'd never in my life cried for two days straight yeah. for anything. But I think that, you know, was the pivotal moment of, of all the tears coming out. I can't remember crying much before then. And it took me a while to cry after that as well. But I do remember being totally okay with the fact that I was just incredibly upset by what mm -hmm. had happened and my parents were very understanding and they just said hey take as much time off school as you want I took three three or four days off school yeah and I remember my friends not understanding why why I was so upset just because my dog got killed yeah but obviously to me it was it was more of a connection there with that little thing than uh, than I'd realized but yeah no, that was not seemed to be a normal thing to be so upset I do remember a lot of my friends making fun of me um, because I was clearly very shaken by what had happened. I was probably about 15 at the time, I think, 15, yeah. 16. So, yeah, that was a def definitely a defining moment. Right. You know, and then yeah, you know, grandparents ahead. dying, parents dying. Well, my father died when, when I was in my 20s. I've never cried as much as I cried when, when that little dog died. Right. But certainly I, I could definitely remember times when, like in sad movies, that I forced myself to not cry. I do know mm. that. Um, probably because I just didn't think it was a done thing to do. And I do remember having an executive coach when I was when I first became a CEO and I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, and I got myself a coach uh, that she helped me be just a little bit more connected to my emotions and more expressive with my emotions. So that was that was in my late twenties. Oh, sorry, early thirties. So, so I think from then I've definitely not not felt the need to hold back tears and things like that and be a little bit more expressive of my emotions at times mm -hmm. than I ever was before. Mm -hmm. so, so there's all these little moments I guess you have in your life when you, in looking back, you realize the, the importance of them in shaping you as who yeah. you are. Yeah, well, it sounds to me that, that the, the death of your little dog, which I completely understand uh, as a dog owner, lover, <laughs> uh, that, that, uh, that your parents created the sort of sanctuary around you and gave you full reign of expression. Yeah. Uh, that's quite extraordinary and very generous and uh, very formative I, I, and, and, and unusual as well, I would probably add, at the, at the time that you were growing up, uh, as reflected by the response of your friends who were probably under a different set of influences. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, amazing. And, and and so sort of looking at your friends in your earlier years, did you have uh, with your fellow sort of male friends, did you have uh, sort of in parenthesis intimate communication, so sort of like beyond the, the superficial we're playing games or doing X, Y, Z or whatever? Did Was that something that was common to you? 
No, no, I don't think so. Um, Later in life, yes, but when I was a teenager, no. Okay. No, I don't remember having having any. I mean, I, I had some. I had some good friends that you know we did stuff together. Yeah. But I don't. I don't recall having any any very deep conversations with them. After my dad died, I did. Yeah. Because that that kind of, I guess that shook me a little bit in realizing that you know we're all human and we're all going to die some point, and then what does that mean? Yeah. And my father dying when I was in my twenties. That was probably the you know the first. My grandfather had died before my dad died, but obviously your your father is 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 a I guess much more of an important influence on your life. So when he died, that was a time for a heck of a lot of reflection on just my life to that point and what it was that I wanted my life to be. And my dad died of uh, cancer, so there was a lot of time when you know he and I were just sitting in the room together and he was telling me all the things that he regretted about his life and all the things that he wanted me to do to look after my mom after he died in between you know there was he was on a lot of uh, a lot of morphine so there was not tons of lucid moments but mm-hmm. the moments that we had you know I, m- I remember that that had a profound impact on me because then I was like wow okay so imagine I'm sitting on my deathbed talking to my children what is it that I would like to say to them yeah <laughs> and all the regrets that that he had you know, I don't, I don't want to have those same regrets. You know, this is a great learning opportunity uh, for me to make sure that I don't, you know, he got very stressed at work and took a lot of that on. And I'm pretty sure that's what led to the cancer that killed him. Mm-hmm. It was just not, not dealing with the stress of, of what was going on at work and with his business and, and everything and trying to shield the rest of the family. Right. So I tried to make sure that I wouldn't fall into the same mistake. Right. So yeah, that was a, that was a lot. And I'd made a list of I remember making a list. I got this little notebook and before the funeral, like in between my dad dying and the funeral, you know, I made a list of all the things that I really regretted with my life mm-hmm. right to that point. And then I kind of put a star next to all the things that I thought I could actually like impact. Some mm-hmm. of them I couldn't, there's just no way that I could, you know, undo a wrong, but some of them I knew that I could. Yeah. And I remember I went through the list and tried to tick off as, as, as many as I could, as quickly as I could. That then led to having a pretty pretty in-depth conversation with a couple of friends because I was just, you know, I came back to them and said, hey, I know that this happened between us and just want you to know I'm very sorry. And, and that led to some pretty cool conversations with some people. And then also one of my best friend's parents, I wronged them and then had to confess to that. And that was a... It was a very stressful, nerve-wracking moment, but I got through it. Right. And my my best friend's parents said to me that they were, you know, they were very proud of of how I how, how I'd acted and how I'd spoken to them about what it was that I'd done, and that you know they were they were very grateful for it. So I think that was a pivotal moment of knowing that you know it's okay to be honest with people. It's okay to confess to things you've stuffed up. We're all human. We all make mistakes. But rather than try and bury it and then you've got your conscience to deal with for the rest of your life. Maybe a better thing to do is actually to confess and to have a conversation about it. Right. So that was uh, that was pretty remarkable what my friend's dad did because he could have reacted completely differently yeah. <laughs> than he did. Yeah. Um, when I gave me a hug at the end and told me he was proud of me and I was not expecting that. So that was that was pretty awesome. Wow. And, and so just be, uh, in, in your teen years, was there anyone that you sort of spoke to that, that, uh, about anything that was um, more than superficial, so more depth conversations? Was there anyone that you, you reached out to or was that not something? No, that- I think uh, most, of my, most of my teen years was just internal reflection, sadly. And I was a swimmer. So okay. that was my sport when okay. I was a teenager. So a heck of a lot of time in a pool, staring at a black line at the bottom of the pool. Right. You have. So yeah. I, had, I had some pretty robust conversations with myself. Yes. But yeah, sadly not not a ton of you know, open, engaging conversation with with others around me. It was it was much more superficial and I guess trying to create some sort of an image, okay. um, as opposed to being truth and, right. and actually having you know proper conversations with people. And so how has this shaped you in reference to being a father of, uh, you know, your kids are now uh, in their teen years, is that right? Yeah, I've got a 16 and a 14-year-old. Right. 
And so, so have has this? Have you gone out of your way to actually ensure that there is the, the space for more intimate, uh, supportive conversation, emotive supportive conversations with your kids? Certainly try. I mean, you can never ensure it because it requires the other human being to play. But no, certainly, I, I, I believe I've got a much more communicative relationship with my children than than I had with my parents. My parents were awesome, but you know there wasn't a ton that I can remember of, of yeah. you know really in depth conversation about emotional things that were going on. I think I I, I hid a lot uh, from them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, trying to create that space for the kids, my kids to open up and, and share. And, you know, I think we've been reasonably successful. I know that my two kids talk to each other about stuff they don't share with, with me and Danielle. Yeah. I know that they talk to their, you know, obviously it's hard to talk to parents sometimes about things, but, you know, they talk to their caregivers that we've, mm-hmm. we've created a, a really awesome network of, you know, there's a massage therapist here and a physiotherapist there and the kids to support them in whatever it is that they're doing you know whether it be sport for my daughter or just keeping my son active um and then we we've danielle and i've created some great relationships with those people so between a lot of us in a, in a kind of a community sense we figure out what the heck's going on with our children and then we can bring it up right okay. in a caring way yeah and i think i guess one of one of the things that i'm i've been reflecting on is you know i don't know how many hundreds of years ago but we were very we were very communal creatures mm-hmm. and it wasn't normal for children to only be kind of brought up by their parents um you know we'd be in a village environment or a community environment and everyone would help each other and there'd be a lot more community conversations and a lot more i guess support and talking than i think we have today yeah so trying to create a little bit of that with our kids because right. i know they they open up and talk more with you know other people than yeah. than their parents but I think I've got. I think we've got a pretty good relationship with them. Okay. You have to ask them that just to get <laughs> clarification from the other side. But you know, we can laugh and we joke. We go out for dinner and we talk. We we have times when we put technology down and and we don't want to, you know, have a conversation uh, riddled by people sending text messages to their yeah. friends and checking Snapchat every five minutes. Yeah. So that's important. Yeah. We bought a. We actually bought a house in a very remote part of Australia uh, that we went to as often as we could in uh, Barrington Tops, which is uh, it's kind of level with Newcastle, but in, inside it's a huge 50,000 hectare um, World Heritage listed rainforest. Yes. So we bought a property there that had no cellular reception. Right. So no Wi-Fi, no phone calls, no nothing, and just a chance to kind of get out there, be in nature, build campfires. Yeah. You know, that was that was awesome. I really, really enjoyed that. Since we've right. been in America, we haven't been able to do that. But yeah. um, that was a really awesome time when the kids were, you know, in their single digits. Yeah. So do you speak to your kids? Do you actually speak about your emotions with your kids? Your sort of like your concerns and fears and emotions and stuff like that? I use emotive words. I think they're getting to the point now where I can actually have a like a proper conversation about certain things that are stressing me without completely freaking them out. You know, we moved to a new country. There's a lot of a lot of stress in relation to the change of, of taking the kids out of their school in Sydney and all their friends network in Sydney and then moving them to America. So so we needed a couple of years just to get over that shock. Yeah. Um, now they're really happy. And we actually gave them the option of moving back to Sydney, but they decided they wanted to stay in Vegas. So Danielle and I are staying in Vegas for the children, not for us, okay. which is kind of cool. <laughs> so I think they, they 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 appreciate that. But yeah, no, certainly I've been trying to teach my son there's more than like three emotions. <laughs> <laughs> Typical male teenager is like, he's either angry or he's really happy or he's like, whatever. Yes. Um, but, you know, clearly there's, there's way more than three emotions. And trying to get him to actually express to me which emotion is it that he's feeling and where did that come from? Teaching him about where emotions do come from and well, my belief at least on, on where emotions come from and what the, what the purpose of emotions are uh, as a communication device to us. So yeah, I'm starting to have those conversations now and him at 16 is I think evolved enough as a human being to, to be open to having those types of conversations. Right. I think when he was a little bit too young a few years ago to really understand it. Um, but now certainly preparing him for, going off and leading his own life, you know, yeah. going off to college is only a couple of years away. 
right. two and a half years away. So, yeah. yeah, we'll be doing a lot more with him just to try and make sure that he learns at least everything that I've learned in my life about just understanding who I am and my personality and, and what, it, you know, the type of impact I want to have on people around me and the world at large and for him to kind of decide for himself what type of human he wants to be Yeah. at this point. I mean, obviously we all change over, over, as we get older, but uh, I just want him to be a little bit more purposeful yeah. with expressing himself. And he's, he's dealing with a, a he's got a, a muscle condition that restricts him from doing a lot of things that he would like to do. So he's coping with, with all of that at the same time, Right. but certainly just being ready for him and, and trying to help him to, to really connect with his emotions. Cause that's one thing that they don't teach you at school. Yeah. Um, is, you know, what the hell emotions are and, and what they're for and how we can connect with them and how we can manage them. So I figure that's my job to do that. Okay. Very nice. Very good. And so going back to, you mentioned that uh, prior to your father dying, it sounded like that was a, a serious inflection point, that there was, from your own experience, there was a shielding uh, that you had built up of shielding yep. emotions and so on. And so, But it sounds like with the, with the death of your father, you started to look at uh, changing that uh, and be, yeah. beca- becoming much more... Yeah, consciously doing that. Yeah, right. And so when I realized you... I'd just built up lots of facades. Yeah. And yeah. No one really knew me except me. Yeah. Yeah. And so how how did you go about that process of sort of <laughs> taking down the facades? Yeah, it was just it was through expression. Okay. Um, I realized that there were times when I was actually you know angry, and yet I put on the, the old British stiff upper lip and didn't let anybody see it in my facial expression that I inhibited having conversations with people that I thought I should have. Yeah. And, and all those sorts of things, because I was, I had a, there was a facade. I was trying to let people, I guess I was trying to control what people's perception of me would be. Right. Which is kind of silly because yeah. that's kind of hard to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're better off just being truthful and then having people around you that want to be around you because they like you rather than, you know, you building a facade and, and hoping to try and um, get people to the, like your facade to be your friends yeah. when they're probably not going to like be really have a really in-depth relationship with you because they just like you because of this projection of you, which in my case wasn't always the real me. Yeah. So it was just recognizing that and being, being okay with that and being, you know, someone told me that we should all just be gloriously fallible, fallible human beings and and really relish in our fallibility. Yeah. And I think that's something that I've really embraced in, in certainly the last decade or so. Yeah. Taking risks. Yeah. And just trying to have more meaningful conversations with people and being a little bit more open. Certainly there's times when, when I'm when I don't do that, but I usually regret them later. Okay. That I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't a little bit more honest and upfront with people. Yeah. But yeah, it's an evolving process. Okay. I think certainly learning some of the skills that I learned through you know, learning how to be a coach, yeah. I think, really helped me. I studied neuro-linguistic programming. I think that really helped me. Studied nonviolent communication. That really helped me to have conversations with people yeah. without trying to, you know, get their defenses up as, as often as I probably was before. Yeah. Just choosing appropriate words when you're having meaningful conversations with people. Um, so, you, you know, you got less likely that they're going to be defensive. Yeah. So all those things I think helped me, and I and I, you know, I I I, I guess I sought them out because I realised that this is the type of human being that I wanted to be. So you know, the universe helped and kind of made these connections and introduced me to various people in my life at various times. You being one of them, and right. you just it's it's up to you then to embrace it and see what it can do to help you to become the you know the person that you really want to be, and which ones you just go, nah, you know, not really into that, and let that go. But this, yeah, I love this. I wanna, I wanna study this. I wanna try and be a little bit better at being able to do to do this, and everything around communicating with other human beings, being more connected with myself. Um, you know, whether it be learning meditation, whether it be you know, learning NLP and learning coaching and learning how to communicate with with other people. I think the realization I had was in business, at least, everybody is a human being. Yeah, and that that did not come naturally to me, to really appreciate that. That you know, when you're the CEO of a company, I called myself the chief happiness officer because I realized my job was just to make everybody around me happy, and including myself. 
Yeah. But I had to, you know, try and make the customers happy, try and make the suppliers happy, try and make the board of investors happy, try and make the, the team members happy. And everything then is is a human connection. There's nothing that we did as a business that wasn't a human connection in some way. Yeah. And therefore trying to have the best human connection as possible was obviously something that's really important. And then, well, how do you do that? And then it's, you know, it's about communicating, not breaking promises and being truthful to people, having meaningful relationships with people, no matter who they are, you know, yeah. whether they are a supplier, a competitor, um, a team member that just stole money from you, that you've now got to, you know, got to fire, you know, doing all of that in as, as, as much of a respectful way as you possibly can. Right. It's obviously very important. It's it's an interesting comment that you made. Every that that everybody is a human being. That statement did not come naturally. <laughs> hmm. I, I thought customers were customers and shareholders were shareholders. Yeah. I didn't. I, I guess I didn't really appreciate as deeply as I probably should have done that they're human. Yeah. And as a human, they're all fallible too. Correct. Yeah. Just because somebody on the board says something that I didn't like doesn't mean that I'm wrong and they're right yeah just means they're a human and they said something and I'm a human and I heard something and now now I'm thinking about it differently yeah and it's okay to go back to them and say I disagree yeah I heard what you said and I don't I didn't appreciate it yeah now this is this can we have the conversation again it took me a long time to realize that it was okay to ask questions in board meetings when I didn't understand something right (laughs) because I didn't want to like pretend I didn't want to give the impression I didn't know what was going on yeah but then people use an acronym and that I wasn't wasn't familiar with I would yeah. just write it down in a notebook and then later go and research what that meant right and then go oh that's what they meant right and then you're like gee wouldn't it have been better to just have said excuse me you just said something I don't understand what is that yeah and realizing that that was okay yeah yeah those sorts of things that we're all we're all fallible human beings just doing the best we can with the resources that we have. Yeah. And everybody else around us that we meet is is doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. None of us are better than anybody else. We're yeah. all just doing our own little path. Yeah. And I, I don't know whether that just comes with life experience or, you know, all these things that happen to you around your life to shape you into that. But I'm glad I realized that, you know, in my 30s. Yeah. So that I've, I've got a, I'm hoping to live beyond the 100. So I've got at least 70 odd years of, of having that understanding and then being a different type of person on this planet as a result of it. Yeah. Which is cool because a lot of people don't, you know, for whatever reason, they don't, they don't understand that and acknowledge that. Well, there, there is a part of the traditional business that is about making sure that there, there is an objectification of people and services and products and countries and nations and so on. I mean, it's much easier to, it's much easier to, uh, extract from another nation if you don't humanize people (laughs) (laughs) i mean it is because the moment the moment we put a face the moment we see if we see if we hear the story of which is the story right now of of just the the starvation in yemen for example yeah 14 million people and that's just yeah. so we hear that story and and because it comes on the back of a whole bunch of other stories uh, from various corners of the earth, etc., etc. But the moment, well, someone... if you live in America, though, Christine, let me tell you, you don't really see that. No, and that's a really. I've, I only, I only know about. Well, no, I, I, I know about that more because I listen to the BBC World Service. That's my kind of primary news source. However, if I was just watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox News in America, and I, I haven't seen any reference to what's going on in Yemen. Myanmar, any of these places um, on the news in America. It's more like it's just the White House television service. Yeah. Yeah, that is a a very serious issue. Um, uh, So sort of circling back to the objectification, though the moment we put a face and an identity on on people, uh, it's like the the terrible image of the boy that drowned in the the refugee um, in the Mediterranean. The image that went mm-hmm. viral several years ago, because uh, there's still people drowning in the hundreds. <laughs> <That's>, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that, and that hasn't changed. But the the image and the pers- personalization of this little boy and the tragedy of that humanized it. And so, yeah. so for me, they're, they're, what you're really speaking about, your own transition, is 
never forgetting that even if we're we're moving blocks of things that involve hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of people, that it is made up of individual humans who have yep. who have families and want to take care of themselves and want the same things that we want, which is a little bit of respect, a little bit of dignity, good work, taking care of yep. their own children, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's 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 what I'm hearing you say that that yeah. you've you're and then realizing that you have a role to play in helping them if they're not, you know, at your level in inverted commas, if yeah. they haven't realized for themselves that this is how the yeah. earth is, yeah, um, helping helping them to come to that conclusion. So yeah, I've certainly tried to help people find meaning in their work and put a little bit more purpose in their work. Um, if I've come to the conclusion that they don't, yeah, you know. Yeah. Whenever anyone talks to me about work-life balance, I always cringe because yeah. I'm like, well, does that mean that all the hours that you spend at work isn't effectively life? Yeah. Which, if you believe that, that's really sad, as opposed to work-life integration, which just realizes that everything that I do as a human between the hours that I'm awake is is me expressing myself. Yeah. And I don't need to differentiate between what I do when I'm yeah. you know, getting paid to do something and what I do when I'm not getting paid to do something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm of the it's same mind. Sad when people, yeah, I've really, you know, I've really adopted this. Uh, Ricardo Semler is one of my, I guess, business heroes. Yes. And I've really been trying to adopt in the last, least, least probably twelve months, his idea of the seven-day weekend. Yes. So I'm talking to you now. It's Sunday, but as far as my in my brain now, I'm I'm kind of going. Well, every day is the same. Every day, yeah. I do a bit of exercise. Every day, I spend a bit of time with the kids. Every day, I have somewhere to eat. Every day, I do a bit of work. Every day, I see people that I like. Every day, I do fun stuff. And not having this kind of separation from Monday through Friday, I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. And then Saturday and Sunday, I'm supposed to do that. Yeah. And just going, nah, screw it. It's just it's all just merged together. Why? Yeah. Why put the pressure on yourself on a Sunday when you're doing work in inverted commas when, you know, if you if you believe that you shouldn't be, then you're going to get upset with yourself. Yeah. When in reality, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. I am, you and I think exactly the same like that. Uh, and, and probably have the privilege of being able to do that because we work for ourselves. Whereas mm -hmm. if you are working for a company, uh, and hopefully in the future there'll be more of that sort of uh, blended joyous experience as we move towards more self-managed type organizations. Yep. But in the traditional model that we have right now, uh, I can understand when people will want to sort of separate themselves out of that, particularly in, uh, in as Bucky Fuller would say, so many jobs are uh, <laughs> creating a whole lot of nothing <laughs> <laughs> Obnoxico, he would call it. There's a, there's there's so many uh, like five thousand troops sitting on a border in the United States right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, that might well be deployed supporting some fires in California or similar. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, I, okay. So, just to sort of go uh, interior a little bit at a high level. Currently, as you as you're in, in this stage of your life, when I say um, what is your relationship with vulnerability, how, how do you, how would you respond to that? I'm certainly, I'm certainly, I feel as though I'm okay. When you say the word, I'm just in, just trying to figure out the vibration inside of me that came up when you said it. Yeah, there's definitely nothing negative that came up inside when you said that word, mm -hmm. I'm, I believe that I'm very comfortable with vulnerability. I guess the question would be, uh, there's, a, there's possibly a difference between my internal view of, of what that word means and then the external expression of it to others. Mm -hmm. Certainly internally, I'm very happy with it, very comfortable with it. Uh, probably not quite as comfortable to express it externally as I am to manage it in my internal world. Mm -hmm. So, so what would it? What would uh, comfort feel for you in expressing it externally? What would? What ha is that something that you would you would aspire to, or are you okay where you're at right now? No, I think definitely aspire to be as as expressive as possible. The I guess the the 
the thing that springs to mind is, you know, in the role of a leader, a leader of a team or a leader of a company, you know, part of, part of what you do is to, I guess, in some ways, shield some of the stresses that maybe I'm more comfortable to manage than maybe some of my team members would not be as comfortable to manage. So then there's usually this, you know, I'm dealing with stuff internally and then trying to project confidence and calm because you know if I tell them every single thing that's going on and all the things that could happen and what the ramifications of those things might be if they're not kind of the same mentality as I do around you know risk and stress and, and whatnot that might be detrimental to them mm-hmm. so it's con- this constant kind of just testing the waters saying a few things that are kind of truthful and then seeing how people respond. Some people respond better than others. And then you kind of figure out, okay, which ones are you not supposed to then be as uh, communicative with about what, what is really going on? Yeah. Certainly with at home, I'm, I think I'm getting a little bit better at, uh, at expressing some of the, I guess, the, the risks and challenges, the things that I'm thinking. I know my wife and I, we could definitely improve, I think, our, our kind of honest and truthful communication with each other about a whole heap of stuff that's going on in our world. Um, and we, we actually, only about four weeks ago, we actually said, hey, we we kind of need to work on our communication between yeah. ourselves. Yeah. So that, you know, we're a stronger partnership for, our, for ourselves uh, and for the kids as well. You know, we're kind of living in a strange land with a strange president and people getting shot every week, which is yeah. not normal for us. <laughs> Definitely seems a little bit more normal here. Yeah, but, very normal, wouldn't but, you say? <laughs> I mean, it's it's sad, but yeah. I mean, I, I mean, gosh, imagine if imagine if eleven people have been killed in a in a nightclub. Imagine if someone had been killed in a yoga studio. Imagine if people have been killed at church and at a synagogue. It happened in Australia, and then you come to work. That would be a lot of there'll be a lot of conversation about it yeah and here it's not yeah because I guess it's just it is kind of normified that that's just the way it is in America and like for me I'm like wow this is this is kind of weird yeah I mean I don't know why they just don't do what John Howard did and just take all the guns off everybody (laughs) (laughs) but then you you mention that here and it's like oh my god you just you just just basically told them the really horrible thing yeah. that you've just done to their mother or something, just the yeah. way that they respond to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love, there's a, someone said to me, imagine if the forefathers of America, instead of saying you have the right to bear arms, as in holding a gun, imagine if what they really meant was you had the right to dress up in fancy dress and have bear arms. <laughs> what that would have done to the psyche of this country, <laughs> things would be very different. <laughs> It will be spelt the same. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. The right to bear arms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tragic. So, but no, it's a constant. I mean, definitely something to aspire to. Yeah. To be, I mean, I think one, when when you learn how to be a coach, you realise that you suck at mind reading for sure. Yeah. Um, so I know no one can read what's going on inside my mind unless I actually communicate to them and, and share that with them. So definitely something that I would aspire to to be a little bit more truthful and honest with expressing what's going on inside inside my yeah. head. Yeah, yeah. So, because you've used the word shield a couple of times, you probably didn't, you're not, maybe not aware of that, but you, it's been sort of a thread throughout this conversation. And, and, and that is a sort of a, a, an archetypal, mm, more, more matri- um, um male sort of thing is that shielding mm-hmm. uh, there's a protection there's protector. the, prote- the yeah. protector the shield of the protector mm-hmm. uh, the breadwinner the, the, pro- the provider yes yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so in this this current environment that you're in do you feel any any sense of and there's a bunch of things in there shielding protecting providing uh that you uh, still have you're still obligated to do certainly not on the on the breadwinner side yeah I don't okay. you know my wife earns as much money as I do yeah uh, through what she does so definitely not there's nothing that there's nothing that I think it's my responsibility whereas I think my dad had that responsibility right because when I was born my mum didn't work and then my dad was the breadwinner and, and I think that that's a lot of things that led to his stress 
so no, I don't. I do not believe that. I believe that um, Danielle and I have equal responsibility when it comes to earning the money that we need to do the things that we want to do with our lives and the things we want to do for our kids. So mm-hmm. definitely not nothing on the breadwinner side. Uh, on the protection side, I guess partly, I, I I do believe there's different types of humans on this planet. Um, so whether you look at you know the spiral dynamics stuff or any you know there's 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 just different types of people yeah that have different beliefs yeah and there's different there's different types of people that can think different time horizons yeah I think I'm someone that can probably think about and plan about you know 15 maybe 20 years ahead I know there's people that can think 50 100 years ahead I know there's people that can't think past this next week so there's different there's just different types of humans that exist and in any organization, so if you look at it from a business context, in any organization, there will be typically, a, you know, a, a splattering of each of those different types of humans in, in any organization, any team. Yeah. So I know for me, if I'm worried about something that's just happened, which might affect the future of the company in, say, three years time, that that is on my radar. Because yeah. I'm thinking, you know, 15 years ahead and three years is def- that's yeah. quite in the short term for me. Whereas somebody on my team that can only think a month ahead, telling them that something might happen in three years, they're just it's just not going to compute the same way as, as it would for me. So definitely there's a little bit of element of that of just, you know, trying to manage the conversation flow within the organizations to to not freak people out uh, with, with some things while still being truthful to them and still empowering them to make the right decisions. Um, but just... There's definitely an element of that, I think. There's there's different types of humans that exist and we should choose our words carefully when we're talking to someone with a completely different set of beliefs than uh, than we do, which then means you just can't necessarily have the same conversation with everyone. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's the best way of doing it, but that's that's just the way that, it's just the way I do it at the moment. Okay. Okay. Because uh, it raises the whole con- conversation of, of resilience and and, uh, yeah. and and resilience development in 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 humans, which is where you know that's a whole another huge conversation. Because uh, and Jonathan Haidt has just written a book about the coddling of America, which just came out about a month ago. I haven't read it yet, but he's talking about how when I, I mean I know for sure when I was a kid. Uh, we were we left home in the morning to go to school by bike or or walk, and it didn't matter the weather, the con- whatever the conditions were, uh, we were going to get there. But that the, the the and we weren't allowed inside until after five o'clock, and etc. So, you know, there was this, and we were supposed to climb trees and break bones and do all the things that kids do but that that level of protectionism um around coddling of children is not really helpful for our resilience training no so so yeah i guess i was lucky my parents were pretty let me do a heck of a lot i was i had a lot of freedom yeah yeah but yeah so you know i find it actually stuff that my kids today don't have right yeah exactly different place now than what it was but maybe that back then but yeah, I know the things that I was able to do when I was 10, 11, 12, um, my children haven't had that same opportunity. Yeah. Well, but I look at somebody who has, who can't, you just said in, in the model of the world that you're using that somebody who's who can't really see beyond a month. And I look at that and I go, I actually feel that that's a level of concern <laughs> because <laughs> um, we, we need to, to support them in having a longer term point of view because there's no functionality in in uh, uh, that that comes back to the resilience lack of resilience because the world is not going to be the same in two years time as it is today no and uh, and we that how do we ensure that we're prepared for that so um, anyway mm-hmm. that I uh, but what I'm hearing you say is it's not so much shielding. You're actually, it sort of comes back to you're choosing some discernment around um, placing humans at centre and being very mindful of if you speak of something, of the effects that it's going to have with different people. Yeah. That's I guess being empathetic yeah. to what you perceive to be true. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to doing it and then picking up the pieces afterwards. And yeah. Yeah. I've had some experience of that. Uh, you know, <laughs> you're a little bit too open, especially when you're in a startup and you've, um, 
you know, you're, you're running out of cash yeah. and you're not sure if you're going to get the cash in or not. Yeah. Uh, how, how, how honest are you with your team members when you know that there's a potential that everyone might lose their job in a few months? Yeah. But you're kind of confident that that won't happen, but there's no guarantee. Yeah. So, yeah, I had to play with that, which yeah. was... Um, See, I'm, I'm, some people some people dealt with the transparency really well. Yeah. Some people were completely freaked out by it and ended up, you know, resigning and getting yeah. a job somewhere else that was a little bit less risky. Yeah. And then we actually did get the money, so it wasn't that big a deal anyway. Yeah. And then looking back and reflecting on it and going, well, did I make a mistake by being too open about that, or should yeah. I've maybe hidden a little bit of that? But then I actually felt pretty good about what I what we'd done. That yeah. I didn't want I didn't want to have to look anybody in the face with. And say I'm sorry you lost your job, and that'd be the first that they've ever heard that yeah. that might might be something that could have happened. Yeah. Want them to at least have been a little bit prepared for it. But yeah. some people are able to cope with that kind of information, and some people aren't. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm with you though. I actually I my my default would have been to say here's where we're at, and uh, and this is what what's in play to have that turn around and for some of you this might not be a viable sort of existence and I understand that uh, and but anyone else who's got some great ideas about how we can make sure that we meet this da 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 you know all on board um, that's yep. the way I, I mean I just yeah that I saw it sounds like I would have responded very similarly to you and give people <laughs> the choice because right? if yeah. those people that aren't uh, that are risk averse um, give them the choice early enough that they've got some sort of time to to find another something that that uh, has a yep. little bit more stability than a startup. A startup's risky anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there well, it is. I, I take your role as in an organisation is is you know you mentioned self organisation. I, yeah. I do believe that's a trend that's going to continue, and that that is how all of our organisations will be in it decade yeah. or two but for that it's just all about being you know being transparent with people and empowering people to yeah. make their own choices yeah and you know take things on for themselves yeah so i'm a huge 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 believer in that as yeah. a movement yeah yeah so just i i uh just another sort of like depth question before we wrap up uh, and it's sort of it, so how are you um or what's your relationship with shame Shame the human or shame with a mum? <laughs> shame the feeling. <laughs> S-H-A-M-E. Um, I mean, when you said the word, there was nothing that popped up inside. Oh, good. Um, so I guess for there to be shame, you have to have a preconceived notion of something. And yeah. then, you know, the reality might not be the, the same as that. No, I don't... I, I don't. I don't know that that. I don't know that there's much that's happened, and certainly in recent years that I can remember where I felt shame. Yeah. Possibly with the maybe the, just with the. You no, know, the exception of a couple of times when things just did not go well on the business front. Yeah. And now you've got to like share that news with with people around you that maybe felt like there was nothing going wrong on the business front and. Yeah. And sometimes, even though you might, I, I, I know for sure for me internally, if there was, there was, I, I remember one moment, I'm happy to share this, when within, within my startup, when I was in Sydney, we had a, we had one investor that was putting in a lot of money and, and on the last minute pulled out. And then we had another investor that was also putting in a large sum of money. And then they said, well, now because that investor's not putting in that money, we're not sure whether we're going to put in this money either. And that, and that was the first time I think that I'd ever kind of really truly reflected on the fact that oh my gosh my business might not be a success, mm-hmm. and these seventy people that are working with me, I know might probably have to go and tell them all they've lost their jobs, mm-hmm. and then I've got to go home and tell my wife that things didn't work out, and then I've got to explain this to my kids, and it is the only time in my life when I ever contemplated suicide, right? And it it lasted about two seconds, so it mm-hmm. wasn't. And then I remember just had this kind of conversation with myself. Where I was like, wow, wouldn't it be easier if this, if I just kind of ended all this now and I didn't have to deal with all of that? And I don't know if shame was the word that I used myself, but, you know, pride, whatever it was. And then literally two seconds later, I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Don't be such a dick. Like, right. You've got so much to live for. There's so much you want to do. There's, this, is just, this is just kind of a little tiny little blip, and I'm sure something good will come from it. But in that two seconds, I do remember feeling quite peaceful. 
and, and calm about life uh, until I snapped out of it. But yeah, that I'm sure that was driven by some amount, some element of, you know, of, of pride mm-hmm. and not necessarily wanting to tell people that my, you know, my business was a failure. And mm-hmm. Therefore, maybe I'm a failure in, in some way. Right. And I really don't like that word very much anymore. Yeah. And I think people can fail often, but I don't like to call people a failure. Yeah. Um, it's just, it feels, it resonates a lot very differently to me. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely, there's been times then when um, I had to deal with that. And there's been, you know, times since, not necessarily on the same scale. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's definitely not, it's not often. I'm very happy in my own skin. I'm very happy with, you know, the, the type of person that I, that, I, that I am, that I believe that I am. And I know that, you know, my happiness is not measured by how much cash I have in the bank account or the type of car that I drive or the school my kids go to or the clothes that I wear. None of that matters at all. It's just, you know, going back to my father, it's, you know, if I'm lying on my deathbed and I'm looking back at my life, I, I, I want to know that I did everything that I could to be as happy as possible and help others to be happy too. Right. Not, you know, how many emails did I respond to or, or what, ca- what car did I drive when I was 47? Yeah. Or, God, was my house cool? Didn't yeah. have all the best new gadgets? Yeah. <laughs> you know, all of that is, you know, I, 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 I do embrace that as well. And I do, I do buy gadgets and stuff, but, um, um, but I know that that doesn't define me, the human. Right. It's just stuff that I have. Yeah. You know, me, me, the human is, is very different. It's, you know, it's whether when I go to bed at night, I lie there and I'm happy with yeah. what I did today yeah. and happy with the impact that I had on other people today yeah. and reflecting the, Oh, what could I do tomorrow? And, and smiling often and trying to be a positive influence on other people around me and helping them, you know, find themselves and express themselves. Yeah. To me, that is the most important thing. Right. On my LinkedIn profile, the first paragraph of my LinkedIn profile, and I haven't looked at it for a long time, but cause I've never had, never had the need to edit it, but I put my purpose in life is to, is, is to be as happy as I possibly can be and to help others to be happy too. And I put my, I, I, someone, someone asked me, what, what would the key performance indicator of your life be? Because I was doing a lot of work with companies and trying to help them figure out, you know, what's the most important metric of your organization? How would you define success with, with a single metric? And for me, it was how many, how many happy minutes did I have while I was alive, you know, multiplied or plus how many happy minutes did I help others to have? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the only thing I think that really matters to me. Very, None of the other stuff. very nice. Uh, so, just a quick: did, what happened with the uh, with the business and the startup in Sydney? Did you raise the money, or did it was it did it go? Pear-shaped? Yeah, no. Luckily, we got the money. We, it was it was uh, <laughs> God, that that week. I don't yeah. think I slept. Yeah. For a for a whole week, it was. But yeah, we we. Um, I was told by by the by the other company that we had to raise five million dollars to support their investment, and they gave us till one p.m. on the Friday to do it. Yeah. And by twelve fifty p.m. on the Friday, well, actually by nine a.m. that day, I think I only had about two million. Yeah. And then did another quick quick rip round and begged <laughs> <laughs> begged as many people as I could, and got it up to about just over four million. And then jumped on a call at 12.50 with 10 minutes to go and said, look, I'm sorry, I couldn't get five, but I did get like 4.2. And, you know, I, I hope that'll be enough. And then got the phone call about quarter past one with the, yep, we're in. <laughs> that was one of the happiest moments of my life. If there's 10 happiest moments in my life, that's one of them. <laughs> just the outpouring of relief yeah. of, you know, realizing that, that you know it was I wasn't didn't do it all by myself but yeah. I you know I could have easily given up yeah you know I could have given up in the worst possible sense of giving up and took my own life at the start of that yeah. week because that was the yeah. week that I yeah contemplated it for two seconds but instead dug in yeah tried to keep everyone around me positive got the support of a lot of really awesome people around me and we we pulled off a miracle yeah and um, you know 70 people kept their job yeah so that was pretty awesome that is that is what it takes, doesn't it? Isn't it? It is. <laughs> yes, yeah, resilience it's... and just persevering through yeah. lots of crap. Yeah, and, and, uh, and but again, it all comes down to humans. Yeah, it's that you know the human connection. I had to, had to have a pretty good human connection with the people that were trusting me and my yeah. you know my my team, 
my co-founder to give us the money. I had to have a good connection with my teammates yeah. to keep the company going, even though they all knew that, you know, by the end of this week, we could all be out of a job. But yeah. they all kept going, you know, so it's just and the people that, you know, that around you, that support you, that having them all keep that belief. It's it's all about humans. Yeah. Knowing yourself as a human and knowing other humans around you and then trying to support them and influence them as best you can and, and empower people to do what, what you think is right. Very nice. So uh, anything um, that you want to add to what you've already said? Any last comments that you want to make? No, I mean, we've covered a lot. You've covered a lot, yeah. Very. This has covered a lot. Yeah. No, no, I, I, but I, I, I guess maybe the final thing is just that I'm – I, I'm very. I feel very positive about a lot of things that's going on in the world, and I think we've definitely had a few hiccups. <laughs> I'm a very strong believer in globalization, and I know that we've, you know, in the last few years we've had a few a few hiccups in that. But again, if I look in, look into the future, every sci-fi movie I ever watched, Earth gets together at some point yeah. and becomes one entity. Yeah. <laughs> And hopefully it won't take an alien race coming to have a battle with us for that to actually happen. But eventually I do believe that globalization will, will kind of win and we'll all realize we're all part of one human race and we yeah. should all help each other and we should not alienate each other by the color of our skin or by our religion or our beliefs or whatever. So yeah. I, I think that, you know, it doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. So the hiccups that we're having on the globalization front and bringing everyone together, I think are just meant to be because they're meant to help us to persevere and push through and yeah. do everything that we need to uh, to come out the other end. So I'm still a very, very positive and a very strong believer in equality and and that we will we will prevail as a human race. Well, I absolutely think that because you s went to school in your mother's knee-high boots, <laughs> <laughs> you, ha you have earned the stripes of... of, uh, of <laughs> Self-expression. Being, being a champion for self-expression and equality. <laughs> Indeed. So how do, if people want to um, connect with you, how, do, how can they find you, Mark? Yeah, LinkedIn is, is, is a good one. My LinkedIn page is M for Mark Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, uh, 007. That's my LinkedIn page. <laughs> Seven, of course. On, on Twitter, it's Marco Rolo. Um, my Email is very simple for my company. It's Mark, M-A-R-K, at Rocketeer, which is Rocketeer without a K, R-O-C-E-T-E-T-W-E-R.com. Yeah, but LinkedIn is a, is a place that seems to be working pretty well for people from all over the world just to kind of connect, connect okay. in with me. Fantastic. Um, I use that a lot. Very nice. Well, thank you. I will have the all of those uh, in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for joining. And thank you for being um, an awesome human in the world of happiness, <laughs> happiness distribution. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. No worries. Thank you, Christine. I appreciate it. To listen to more of these conversations and access the show notes, visit 223am.com. That's the number two, the number two, the number three am.com and experience a whole new kind of success and fulfillment. If you've got what it takes, experience a session directly with Dr. Christine McDougall. Visit 223am.com and apply now. Thanks for listening.